Father, it is our heart desire that all praise be yours. And we do desire to be worshipers this Christmas, and we admit that we are so easily pressed into the mold of the world. And what a challenge it is to keep our focus on Christ. So would you help this time this morning as we begin a new week heading into Christmas weekend uh, to, to refocus and retool and remind ourselves of the greatest gift that was ever given in Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray, Lord. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Um, did I reference that I've been to Walmart? Um, I said to Janet when we were in Walmart, I said, can you believe how many people are here? It was like 11 o'clock in the morning on Friday, our day off, my day off. I just was really observing how many people were shopping for Christmas and how much they were buying. I thought, boy, people have a lot of money or they think they have a lot of money. Isn't it interesting how gift buying at Christmas time has become so important? We wouldn't think of not buying these gifts for so many people and so many gifts for the same people. I thought I would um, give you a little help in your shopping here and uh, let you in on uh, what some of the most popular gifts for Christmas have been. In 1936, it was Monopoly. Monopoly. Um, 1943, uh, technology moving forward, you had the Slinky. Um, I remember playing with those when I was a little boy. I enjoyed those very much. 1952, now I think this is a great gift. It's so old that it's new. Um, 1952, Mr. Potato Head. And I think when it came out, you actually used a real potato um, and stuck the things on a real potato. And then later they came out with the plastic potato that you would stick all of the different uh, features on. 1975 uh, reminds us how good it is that we're not in the 70s anymore. Um, and um, an upgrade from a pet rock, maybe. 1977 was a bucket of slime. I mean, uh, what the space age gave us in technology was great. How about 1980, um, where we had the Rubik's Cube, never did get into those things, um, but a lot of people did. And then 1989 was kind of a threshold point, and electronics broke into the, into the gift market. And in 1989, we had the Game Boy. Left, uh, leaving that for a couple years later was Barney. I don't know if that was a step forward in progress. We decided that playing video games and playing with whatever that is, dolly thing. I never got into Barney either. Sorry if you're into Barney. Um, he's a dinosaur, is he? Okay, cool. Very cool. Yeah. Um, do you know what I want to do to those inflatable Santas? That would work too. How about the Razor, the Razor uh, scooter? Get those kids outside to play. But then in 2006, there's no return from electronics. PlayStation hit the market. 2007, the iPod. 2012, the Wii. And this year, do you know what it is? It's Cosmo. The number one anticipated gift to be purchased and given this Christmas in the United States is Cosmo. It's going to cost you about uh, somewhere in the 180 bucks range, time you get out of the store. You act like you don't know about Cosmo. Well, let me inform you. I am so... <laughs> I had no idea either. 
It just happened to be on the same website. This is all one website on the most popular gifts of Christmas. So Cosmo is a very small, robotic, I think it's actually a character in a movie. A kid's movie, maybe? It's a take on a character in a movie. But this company, it's not, Caleb? No, I thought maybe it was, but... Okay, yeah, I know it is, that. Don't get ahead of me. It was... So, but it's very little. It's very little, and it's a robot, but the thing that's unique about it is it, it, will, it's, it has personality, and it can respond to you. If you're down, it'll be sad, or it'll cheer you up, and the more you're with it, the more it gets to know you, and it knows what you like and what you don't like, and it, and it uh, responds to voice commands, and it's very little, and I don't know what else you do with it, um, except maybe like what you do with inflatable Santa Claus or something, I'm not sure. But, um, so... Can you remember being delighted in the greatest Christmas gift you've ever gotten? You probably have some kind of memory. Uh, mine was a, a toolbox that my dad made for me when I was seven years old. Still have it. Still think about that. Christmas. But do you know that as we turn to Luke chapter 2, do you know that the greatest gift that was ever given for Christmas was not on our list here? Those might be the most popular in the last several years but the greatest gift that was ever given at Christmas was, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ, given by our Heavenly Father. Uh, I invite you to turn to Luke's Gospel in chapter 2. And I want us to see Christmas through the eyes of the shepherds here. And I want you to particularly to note their response. And now you do know that the shepherds didn't know it was Christmas that night, Right? They didn't know that it was Christmas. They didn't know that they were celebrating the very first Christmas. What I want you to particularly observe is when they understood the gift that was given, I want you to see their response. We're in a three-week series on worship here. Last week, we spent some time thinking and bumping into the, the idea of the cost of our worship. And this week, we're looking at joy in worship. Let's read the account of the shepherds, and, and let's think about what appears to be an, 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 an insuppressible, automatic, reflexive-type, joy-filled worship that spills over in their lives when they realize the gift that was given that very first Christmas. We're picking it up. Uh, after, right after the birth of our Lord, that first night in Luke 2, verse 8, uh, Luke's account, and in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. Imagine these guys. They're pretty rough guys, pretty rough men. Just another night in the field. Just, just old country bumpkins. I imagine there's a few teeth missing. I imagine there's a few layers that night of, of extra rough burlap jackets or coats or camel hair work coats. I don't know exactly their arrangement. I do know that it was customary for these shepherds to gather in and, and bring their flocks close together so that they could run the minimal amount of night guards to protect from night enemies of their herds, their flocks. Others were resting, whether they were right there, whether they had a bunkhouse or some kind of wagon or a tent. And there they are, just another night. It's dark. There's no city lights. There's no Charlestown races and slots to make a glow over our whole community here. There's just deep darkness in the country with 
if it's a clear night, the stars. And there they are, keeping watch over their flock by night. And imagine this, just imagine. I mean, some of these guys, they had spent their entire lives outdoors, <coughs> tending sheep. They were rough outdoorsmen. And in the darkness of the deepest part of night, look what it says in verse 9. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. I guess so. I mean, it must have been a most dazzling, a most sudden, bright light. It says the glory of the Lord. That reminds us that it was likely what we would call from the Old Testament particularly the Shekinah glory. The kind of glory that is present around the throne of God himself. Just that it's a glow. It was, it, it, there's it, just, it's there. This brightness. And it's deep, deep in the darkness of night. It's sudden. Uh, we know that there was an exclamation. There was, it was loud. And they were really afraid. You can scare yourself late at night in the dark, can't you? I do myself going out to my wood stove sometimes and pick up a stick. What's that noise? Not going to get me. And these shepherds, you know, bam! And here we are, and the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear, grown men filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you, these shepherds, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. It was personal to them. And they went with haste. They were in a hurry. They were not wasting time. I don't know, you know, some guy had to stay back and watch the sheep or if they just kind of, hey, they'll be fine. Let's go. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby was lying in a manger. I mean, what a moment. I mean, just evidently a few hours before Mary had with all the physicality of every biological birth that's ever taken place given birth to the Lord. She must have been in some kind of recovery mode. No doubt Joseph had her covered, wrapped, hovering. They are in temporary residence here in some kind of a stable, a manger scene. And there's that baby wrapped up. And these crusty old guys come in, man, and their eyes are just shining. And they've experienced this most remarkable scene in the darkness of night where they've just been just floored with the light and the suddenness. And you have to believe that they understood at some level what was happening. They understood that it was an angelic pronouncement. They understood that it was Messiah being born. They must have understood their Old Testament at some level. They had some kind of a context. You have to believe that. That they reacted and they went. And imagine in this, I would imagine, somewhat of a low-ceiling, tight-quartered place, these big old country boys coming in and gathering around. And I would assume that Joseph and Mary, like any other couple, 
We're so pleased to have someone pay attention to their baby. And they came and they went with haste, found Mary and Joseph and the baby, verse 16 again, lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known. They could not not react. You see that? They made this known. They could not not react. And they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child, this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. I take it that they told them that Messiah had been born. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in, in her heart. What a precious, wonderful person Mary was, huh? And how God had selected her, and how what started out so confusing was something that was such a mystery. And she pondered. She also had a context of understanding from angelic information, special words brought to them. No doubt she and Joseph must have conversed about this. And the shepherds returned then back to their stations, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. It was at the end of eight days then when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. That was the announcement given to Joseph, and you shall call him Jesus, Matthew one twenty one. you shall call him Jesus, for why? For he shall save his people from their sin. So the shepherds didn't even know it was Christmas, and they are given, without even realizing it, the most spectacular, amazing gift that has ever been given. And I want you to observe. I mean, one thing we have to agree upon, that as the shepherds took in the information, they could not contain themselves. I mean, notice the, just the response as we look at our notes. Clearly, the birth of Christ brought a response of great joy to the shepherds. So why don't we ask ourselves, uh, where are you today on the joy meter? Where are you on the joy meter? Let's just uh, categorize number one as empty. There's probably other descriptive terms we could use. My joy meter is empty. I, my joy tank is empty. No joy. One, two, three, a little bit, four, more, five, six. All the way to the end, uh, we'll just use the word ecstatic just bubbling over with joy. I don't want to minimize in any way the difficulties that you might find yourself in this morning. Your heart might be broken beyond broken. Maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a child, maybe it's a life circumstance, maybe it's a medical condition, maybe it's a financial strain. Maybe you don't even know how to describe why you're empty. And I don't mean to trivialize the difficulties that life can press in upon us. But can I suggest with PV's postulate there that people running low numbers on the joy meter are probably not characterized by worship. People who run low on the joy meter are probably not worshipers. And that doesn't mean that in your brokenness at times you can worship with a, with a worship of tears. 
uh, a deep-seated confidence that God loves you, that you are being shepherded and cared for by the Holy Spirit, that God is in control of your life circumstances, and you can worship sometimes even in the darkness of night with tears and sobbing. But I'm talking about most of us on an average day as we go about our business, as we live out our lives, I find even in myself and in others, we end up being down in the small number side of the, of the joy meter scale. We're just not characterized by joy. We want to <laughs> boister it up and and build it up at Christmas time. This is a joy-filled time of year. Why? Because you're going to get presents. Or you're going to overeat. I was mad at myself for eating too much yesterday. I'm going to try it again today and make sure that's what the problem was. But <laughs> What's wrong with us? Can I suggest today that... There really is no gift on our screens this morning or gift that you can receive this year that is going to bring a lasting joy in your life. But can I suggest that of all people, those who've been with Jesus, those who have had the announcement that Jesus is born, those who have gone and bowed down before Jesus, their, their joy meter ought to creep up. Don't you agree with me? And that we ought to be people characterized by the spilling over of the heart with joy for the greatest gift, and it's not Mr. Potato Head, that God ever gave. So let's look again, even a little closer at the text, at these, this announcement. I'm, I'm particularly focused um, on the way the shepherds responded because they understood what was happening here and, and what is it that they observed? What is it that they knew? What was in the context of their thinking that should bleed over to us that we, this Christmas, would be like the shepherds in response and not be able to not worship? We must worship with joy. Or at least, let's go up a couple notches on the joy meter, okay? Well, we're looking at the text here and we know the story so well. There are very few stories in all of the Bible that we know uh, more than this story that is more familiar. It is so familiar to us. But notice verse 10. And the angel said to them, so that they're, they're told not to be afraid. They're getting their act together. Their hearts must have been racing. They were just like, whew, breathing. Whoa, whoo, whoo. I bring you good news of great joy. Notice, first of all, that this message that the angels bring which is about the baby that is being born, that, that this will be for all the people. It is a joy-filled message, and part of the reason it is joy-filled is because it is for all the people. It is not a select gift. It is a universal, worldwide, even gift. You really work hard, don't you, being fair with your kids most of the time. You know, fill in the cup of milk the same amount so they don't fight over it. And then at Christmas time, at least trying to figure out spending the same amount of money on them. And if one has a big gift, you got to make sure they know that their little gift was more expensive than that. We were worried about fair. Listen, the most fair gift that was ever given was Jesus Christ by God to the world because it was to all people everywhere, all the same. 
First thing we learn about this announcement from the shepherds and their reaction is that this pronouncement of the angels was a statement of God's love. The birth of Christ was a statement, number one in our notes, of God's love. And the statement is that people are valuable to God. People are valuable to God. I believe that that's part of the reason that the shepherds were selected to be this elite, upfront, notified group to be able to respond. They evidently had a heart and a mind that was inclined to believe and walk by faith. They must have understood the Old Testament at some level, and they engaged immediately in the joy of the pronouncement of the birth. But even the shepherds themselves, kind of the lower echelon, nobody fancy here, just common good old people for all people. So let's proof text this statement. I'm saying that the shepherds hearing from the angels the announcement and pronouncement that unto you uh, that that this is a this is good news of great joy and it is for all people. That's a statement of God's love because God values people. Let's let's proof text that, okay? So the most familiar of course Uh, Right up there with the familiarity of the Christmas story is the familiarity of John chapter 3. But let's just glance there. Uh, Let's do that. I recognize that this time of year in our Christmas services and going into Christmas week here uh, next weekend that it's possible that there's folks here that aren't normally in church or you don't really know that much about the Bible or what Christmas was really all about. And and these verses are so significant, they, they must not become over familiar with us. John 3, beginning with verse 16. The birth of Christ was a statement of God's love because people are valuable to God. Let's see if that's true here in John 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world. Now, I take that to be people who live north of the Arctic Circle and somewhere on an island down in the Pacific. And those who have the misfortune of living in Maryland or California or South America in the Amazonian jungle. I think that this verse is for all of them, isn't it? In the same way that the angelic announcement to the shepherds proclaimed that it is good news for all people. God loved the world of all people that he gave his only son. That's Christmas right there, isn't it? That's what the angels were announcing to the shepherds, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. That's really good news. I might have to figure out why I'm supposed to perish, but we'll get there. But have everlasting or eternal life, the ESV translates that word. But let's read 17. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. Okay, so one thing God did not do. He did not send Jesus to find sinners and turn them into a grease spot on the parking lot. God did not come to condemn sinners. There it is, right there. God takes no delight in condemning sinners. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world of all people everywhere might be saved through Him. Whoever, there's a word. That's a universal word, isn't it? That's a word that reminds us of the angelic pronouncement. 
And it shall be for all people. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. So it's an interesting formula that is pretty straightforward. My belief, that would be faith, in who Jesus is, has everything to do with whether I'm condemned or not in the presence of a holy God. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe, you're condemned already, man. You have already started eternity of condemnation by not believing. I take it, and it is true, we could proof text it as well, that this belief is a faith in the reality of who God is and who Jesus is and what He's done for us on the cross in dying for our sin and us acknowledging our sinfulness that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. To be condemned. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. This is a unique gift. It's a universal gift, but it's a unique gift. The only Son of God. There is no other way. This is an exclusive, designed gift. It's not replicated. You can't replicate it. There's no knockoffs. It is the only way. In fact, let's go to 1 John. And, and John develops this a little bit more. Um, in 1 John, in the epistle of 1 John, uh, he develops this idea a little bit more. Uh, uh, just like in John 3, the idea of the love of God is really clear. For God so loved the world. The world of sinners, the world of all people. In 1 John, love is also a theme word. It's repeated over and over. And the fact that God loves us like this is the very reason that we are to love one another, he argues. But in 1 John chapter 4, beginning with verse 7, let's take a look here really quickly and let's, let's look at the theological reality of this Christmas gift. This is the theological reality of this Christmas, kind of, kind of a technicality. You know, when you open up some gifts at Christmas time, some of you, not me, but some of you will actually read the manual and figure out how to work it. I'll just figure it out or ask you how to run it. And, and you've got to read the manual, and that's what we're doing right now. We've got this gift called Jesus. We're going to open the manual, and we're going to read some of the fine print about what a, a, an incredible gift it is. Beloved, let us love one another, verse 7 of 1 John 4. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So my love for God, and ultimately in this book for other people, is one of the identifying characteristics of the reality that I, that I have accepted this gift of God. Anyone, verse 8, who does not love, does not know God, because God is love. You can't know God and not love. doesn't work. Okay, verse 9, in this, okay, what is this? Let's keep reading. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. Here's this, that God sent his only son into the world. That's Christmas, isn't it? In this, that God sent his only son into the world. That's the, de that's the definition of this. So that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God. Now look at verse 10 very closely. We're getting into the fine print of the explanation of the gift that we've just opened. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now what in the world does that mean? I mean, so... 
even a superficial reading of the passage tells us that the reason God sent Jesus to Bethlehem to be born was to be the propitiation for our sin. That was the purpose that he came. In this, God demonstrated his love. That while we were yet sinners, Christ is sent to be the propitiation for our sins. If you have an NIV here today, it probably, or some other more modern translations, say the atoning sacrifice. The atoning sacrifice. The old theological term translated in the ESV, the NASB, the King James, the propitiation. So let's look at our notes and let's, let's just remind ourselves of something here. First of all, let's remind ourselves that God is a holy God. And the holiness of God demands penalty for the offenses of all sin. You got that? So God has no ability. There are things that God cannot do. Okay? For example, in John 3.16, where it says God so loved the world. God can't love you any more than he already loves you. He can't give to you any more than he already has given you. And one thing God can't do, he can't ignore your sin. He is not capable. It is not, it is not in the character of God. It is not in the framework of the existence of God to know about sin, to see sin, to be offended by sin, and to be able to not condemn it. He is so holy and so pure and so perfect, okay, that he cannot not condemn sin. Now, we all have different standards of purity, don't we? So, like, if we're eating in a public restaurant and anything touches the tabletop, Mrs. Marceau will not eat it from then on. But I, when I was standing in line at this high-end place, saw some 16-year-old kid with a, a smelly rag wipe that table off, and so I know it's clean. <laughs> I saw the bucket. I mean... There was a little bit of suds there in that gray matter. I'm not going to waste that French fry. Are you kidding me? And if I'm fast enough to keep her from seeing, if it's on the floor, I'll pick it up and eat it. There's nothing wrong with that. It's good for the immune system, people. Come on. But you understand what I mean? But this is clean. That's not clean. It touched the table. How do you know it's not clean? Because it touched the table. The table's filled with germs. How do you know it's filled with germs? Because I read it on the line. It's the dirtiest thing in the whole world. is a restaurant tabletop. Well, I don't see any dirt on it. You see, with God, you can't argue. You can't play around. You can't fool around. With God, even the most microscopic thing taints it. He's, we cannot overstate the purity of God. The holiness of God means that there is complete absence of the germs of sin. And because of that holiness, he must react to sin. He cannot not react to sin. Now listen, when he says that he sent Jesus to be the propitiation or the atoning sacrifice for our sin, look at the notes. Propitiation is Christ's Atoning sacrifice, okay, so just wrap up in that. Everything that Jesus did when his blood flowed on the cross and he died. Christ's atoning sacrifice, you could say at the cross, that alone fulfills the demands of a holy God for the penalty required for the offenses of sin, for sin's offenses. 
So God has a requirement that the wages of sin is death, and it's always the and He cannot not react. And there's only one thing. There's only one thing that changes the mind of God, and it is when Jesus got on the cross. And took our sin upon himself, and he once and for all satisfied through that death. Remember, I said Jesus, God has to demand a penalty for anything that violates His holiness, and we bo- we were born violating His holiness. But the only one thing it is exclusive. There are not knockoffs. There's only one. Is when Jesus goes to the cross. And he once and for all took the sin of the world upon himself. He satisfied. That was an arrangement, only known to the mind of God, that satisfied this demand that sin be condemned. But it doesn't stop there for us. Listen. Look at the rest of the sentence. Christ on the cross bore the wrath of God against sin so completely. That it brings the believing sinner, those who believe in Christ, it brings the believing sinner out from under the condemnation of God's wrath and moves them into a position of favor with God. So you are in the death chair, the death penalty chair. Christ substitutes in and becomes the propitiation for our sin. The only one who could satisfy with this atoning sacrifice the righteous demand of a holy God that sin be judged. Jesus took it upon Himself. He took and suffered the wrath of a holy God. God judged God for our sin, and so then, not only that, but when we believe in Christ and accept this greatest gift that was ever given, we're moved out of the chair of condemnation and we are seated in the chair of favor. And that's another whole study. I mean, the chair of favor means you've been adopted into His family. It means that that you are joint heirs with Jesus. You know, dirty, rotten, dirty dog sinner over here. And some of us are, aren't we? All of us. Some of us have just acted on it more than others. And we're now in the seat of favor, all because God values people. And when he announced to the shepherds that this will be for all people, it was nothing other than a statement of God's love for the world. And he became the propitiation for our sin. Are you creeping up on the joy meter at all? Now, do you see how a bucket of slime for Christmas doesn't really get it? You can read Titus chapter three. There's more textual evidence that it is out of love that God did all of this. You say, why would God do this? The only right answer is He loves us. He values people. It's a statement of God's love. That's the only explanation we have. Number two,、uh, this announcement and pronouncement of the shepherds was a statement of God's grace, because sinners are salvageable. Not only is it a statement of His love, but it's a statement of His grace. Look at verse eleven. We're back in Luke two.、Uh, we left off in First John four. We're going back to Luke two, and notice verse eleven. Look what it says. Not only was this a pronouncement for all people, but notice in verse eleven、uh, that it, that brings great joy. The end of verse ten for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David. Notice who it is. Who's born there? A savior. 
the one who saves. God is providing the agent of rescue. You don't deserve it. You can't muster it up on your own. You can't manipulate the circumstances. You are on your own and you are under condemnation by a holy God until God himself, out of his love, shows grace to you. What is grace? Grace is receiving from God that which we do not deserve. It's receiving from God that which I do not deserve. I really probably deserve, no doubt about it, I deserve to pay the penalty for my own sin. Do the crime, do the time. And God interrupts the formula. And that's called grace. I deal with people all the time who are stuck in their sin. Now, I can relate. I do battle with sin every day. I, I, they sit across their desk from me and they're looking at me, asking me to help them figure out how to get from, out from underneath their sin. That's not an easy task, you know, because in our flesh we're driven. There's so many circumstances, so many things. Uh, but stop and think for a minute. When you come to see the pastor, when you come to see me about your sin, how bad is your sin at that point? Nobody wants to tell the pastor how bad they are. Nobody wants to tell the pastor where they were Saturday night. It's like, Everybody wants Pastor Van to be their buddy, right? Say yes. Yeah, we're buds. So you know when people come to see me? When the wheels have come off, man. Or when their wife tells them, you go see Pastor Van or I'm out of here. And they don't want out of here. They want to be there with their wife. And so I'm pretty used to it. I recognized a long time ago that by the time people come to see me, sin has really been at work a long time. And so I have some pretty simple answers. A, run to the cross. B, revel in His grace. You can't fix that. You can't fix how stupid you are. You can't fix how bad sin is rotting and decaying your home and your marriage and your family. But when you go to the cross, that's where we can get right with a holy God this Christmas. And that's where the blood of Christ cleanses us from, you fill in the blank, the blood of Christ, Christ cleanses us from all sin. That's why I have the answers for people. You want me to fix your life? Come see me, I'll fix it. The blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. I don't mean to make light or trite. Retraining ourselves to walk in godliness is often a brutal trail. But this is grace. It's a grace system. It's when God will give me what I don't deserve. I don't deserve a new chance. I don't deserve the forgiveness of sin. I don't deserve to suffer the consequences of my own stupidity and sinfulness. God is taking that away. 1 Timothy 1.5 says, this, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Will you fully accept this saying? Paul says that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? He came into the world to save sinners. So when the shepherds received the announcement, the whole point was, I'm here, sinners. That's why they went away with joy and rejoicing. If 
If you understand your sinfulness and you understand that you're in the chair of condemnation, the greatest news you can ever hear is, I'm here. And I can give you life where there's death. I can give you favor where there was condemnation. That's why he came. We'll not take time to look at it here, but in Luke chapter 8, let me remind you of a story. It has to be my favorite story in the whole New Testament. At least in the top 50 of my favorite stories in the whole New Testament. It's in Mark 5. You remember Jesus with his disciples, he comes across the Sea of Galilee, they park their boat, they get out of their boat, and a crazy man starts screaming at him at the top of the cliff. He's a crazy man at Gadaria. He's so crazy that Matthew's account and Mark's account say that he took stones and he cut himself all the time. Luke and Luke 8 says he never even wore clothes. He was this grotesque, wild, naked, bleeding, crazy man who lived in the tombs at the top of that cliff. The demons are in him. He's demon-possessed. His life is beyond broken. And what does Jesus do? Pick up some stones, boys. Take him out. Now, Jesus... His very presence, his very presence causes the demons to go berserk with fear that he's going to cast them into the abyss. And, and they beg him, they speak out, and they beg him to put him into the, a herd of pigs that are over there. They're evidently black market swine there. And put him in there. Evidently, demonic spirits do not like to be disembodied. So they beg to be put in the animal's Jesus allows them to go. They run off a cliff and drown. Jesus deals with the man, and the passage ends with one of the, one of the greatest scenes in all of the New Testament. And it says, the man whose life was totally broken, the man who was beyond human repair, the man who had been consumed by Satan and sin, it says, and he was sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. That's what this gift does. This gift gives you your right mind in the presence of a holy God. That's grace. Now, I see some people, I don't know everybody in this room, but I know a couple of you used to be out of your mind. You used to be crazy out of your mind with sin. And you're sitting here this morning clothed and in your right mind in the presence of Christ. Are you going up on the joy meter? Are you going up on the joy meter? This is also, as we conclude, a statement of God's plan. The whole thing presents a picture of the shepherds running to find Jesus, and indeed they do. And notice what it says in verses 15 and 16, back in Luke 2. It says, let us go over to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. Notice what it says. I put it in their notes. They went... And they found. This is a statement of God's plan, isn't it? That he can be found. It's a statement of God's plan. Jesus is findable. Jesus is findable. I had a C minus in grammar. Don't worry about it. John 1.12 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, listen to this, listen to me, he gave the right. He gave the right to become a son of God. We really don't like that. 
Because I guarantee all of us can name people that we've just soon seen cast into hell and burn forever. There's, there's people in this room that could name the people that they would kick in the rear end and launch them into hell if they could. But I'm telling you, because of the gift, they have the right. They have the right, just like you have the right, to become a child of God. He can be found. They heard the news. They reacted. They went to find him. And they found him. Have you found Jesus this Christmas? He's findable. I don't know if you're getting Cosmo or Monopoly or Mr. Potato Head for Christmas. I really don't care. The number one thing is, if you don't recognize that Jesus is the greatest gift that ever came on the first Christmas when they didn't even know it was Christmas, you're missing the whole point of Christmas. And so will you stand and bow your head with me, please? Ultimately, verse 20, our point in the text is that you cannot know this and not bubble over with joy. And there needs to be joy in our worship this Christmas because of the significance of this gift. With our heads bowed as we prepare to pray, can I remind you that accepting this gift from God in Christ is as easy as A, B, C. A, admit that you're a sinner. That's where it starts. I'm broken, man. I admit that I'm a sinner. I have offended a holy God to the degree that there's nothing I can do about it, but Christ came to be the propitiation to move me from condemnation to favor. A, admit that you're that sinner. B, believe that God loves you enough that Jesus came to die for your sin. And C, call upon the name of the Lord and be saved today. Call upon His name. Whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, the Bible tells us. Admit your sin. Believe that God sent Jesus to be the propitiation for your sin. Call upon Him for salvation. That's something you have to do. I can't do it for you. You would say something like this, Oh God, I recognize that I am a sinner. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sin. And I'm asking you, I'm calling upon you to save me today from my sin. And you will have great joy in knowing that you have everlasting life through Christ in heaven with God as his child. And you know what? We've only scratched the surface about understanding our salvation. So Father, you know our hearts and our minds and we just uh, pray this Christmas that we would um, be careful about being pressed so completely into the world's mode that our joy meter and our joy tank is empty because we're so stressed out about the gifts and the wrappings and whatever. Would you help us to find that stability, some kind of equilibrium in our lives where the joy of knowing you spills over into meaningful worship this Christmas. That's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.